Amen. Good morning. If you're following along in your pew rag Bible, it is in page 1003. Okay, page 1003. We're starting with verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from, the de from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it, it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, that things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promise. This is the word of God. May the name of the Lord be praised throughout all of the earth. May the name of Christ be proclaimed in places where it is not yet known. Again, with thanks to Pastor Gerald, who was here in the earlier service, for kindly allowing me to stand in his steed and risking his name um, upon my service. And again, elders, thank you so much for letting me stand in and fill this slot here. And to all of you, good morning. It's so good to be here among you again. I am enjoying the series in Hebrews, as I hope you are. The book of Hebrews is so encouraging, yet challenging. We have a very challenging passage before us uh, today, but the Lord, uh, in his kindness, has given us the book of Hebrews to build us up in uh, the faith, and it's good being at a church where we can go through this book as we 
Prepare to turn to our pastors today. Leave your Bibles open, please. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Gracious and all-wise are you, Heavenly Father. We bow before you because we have no resources in ourselves to adequately hear the word of God or proclaim it. We are not worthy of the least of your mercies as your word tells us. We are only your servants who have done the duty that you've called us to do. So now from heaven, look down upon us and hear our prayers. We need to hear a word from heaven. We know that both heaven and hell await the outcome of this service and of this sermon and of this message to see what will be produced in the lives of those who hear. So give us the fullness of your spirit so that we may do all that you would have us to do from your word, that we may be pleased to see you even as you will be pleased to see us. Remember our missions partners around the world to bless them with strength and with grace and with boldness and power and open doors for the gospel. May they see hundreds, yea, thousands coming to inquire about Christ through the works of their hands. And now speak to us. Let us hear your voice today so that we may do what is pleasing in your sight so that the gospel may transform lives in Oak Park. Chicagoland and around the world, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I graduated from college, not having a job offer in my field, I took an entry-level job in the federal government. Although it was not the job I wanted ideally, often people reminded me of the blessing of having such a position. They would say, remember, once you get past the first 90 days, you're in. And it's almost impossible for them to get rid of you after that. <laughs> Those persons were referring to what seemed to be an understood policy in many lower-level federal positions, that if they could not find reason to fire you during the probationary period, you had job security in the government for life. While this security is good and should allow workers to perform their best without fear of being let go for foolish reasons, the practice of the unwritten policy often had just the opposite effect. Instead of creating outstanding secure workers, it allowed for many mediocre workers to remain mediocre. For there was no fear of being let go and no threatening incentive to spur improvement in work. So an agency could be filled with mediocre workers. It could be filled with people who were perpetually late to work or always sneaking out early before the shift was over. It was filled with people who spent more time at the coffee canteen than at their desk, who turned in sloppy work rather than exceptional work, or who were not thinking of giving the best customer service. People who make us wonder why the agency keeps them and waste our tax dollars. People who felt 
totally comfortable in their mediocrity. A guaranteed annual pay increase based solely on the worker's date of employment and not on performance, further backed the policy. And so that I can be fair in throwing all my stones here, there are some who would argue that academic tenure fosters a comparable poor performance safety net for a good number of tenured teachers. So there you have it. For many people who identify themselves as believers, similar to the meritless security tradition that is part of many federal agencies, are the results of the teaching once saved, always saved. That is, many understand that this phrase means that a believer cannot do anything to lose salvation once he or she has it. That the certainty of gaining heaven is not based on one's performance before one trusts Christ. So therefore, it is not based on one's performance after trusting Christ. And I would agree with this understanding. However, what I do not agree with and what is dangerous for your belief is the assumption that everyone who professes belief in Christ, regardless of the performance of that profession, or even with a lack of continuance in that profession, is actually a believer. The Hebrews writer has a different view of a Christian profession that lacks continuance in Christ, that lacks maturing in Christ. Unlike an organization that has no teeth to remove a poor performing worker after an initial probationary period, however, the writer to the Hebrews warns that a complete lack of continuing in Christ removes security in Christ. For it reveals that the one is an apostate and not a believer. Yet in today's passage, the writer also holds out the hope that someone who is maturing is a believer because you are continuing in Christ and not apostatizing, which is the sign of the assurance of one's salvation. In order for us to move closer to the author's intended meaning of this passage, let's keep in mind that we are looking at a persecuted people. We are looking at a people who are tempted to turn away from Christ to the old covenant mediators because of their persecution. It is difficult being a Christian in a world that is hostile to the Christian faith. It was easier to go back to ancient Judaism, which still had state sanctioning and allowed Hebrew Christians to maintain friendships with their fellow ethnic Jews without all the baggage of Christianity. Quite frankly, life was just easier before they became Christians than it was after they became believers. So a return to Judaism was tempting, especially since they seemed still to have access through God or to God through the Levitical priesthood. 
But in this third of five passages in Hebrews warning against departing from faith in Christ, the writer of this letter will have no such pluralism of religion, not even for an embracing of the Jewish faith. Instead, he indicates that the temptation to depart from Christ at times of suffering or to tone down Christ or to outright deny Christ reveals a need for maturing in Christ. The temptation reveals a need for a maturing that is the guarantee of inheriting all that God promises to us. So then, what does this maturing entail? First, maturing fights dullness of hearing so one can receive the deeper things of Christ. Chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. The about this at the beginning of this passage looks back to the last clauses in 510, placing the focus on Jesus becoming a priest after the order of Melchizedek, now twice mentioned in Hebrews. The shadowy figure from last week's passage takes up much space in the argument of the Hebrews writer and is extremely significant to the audiences standing firm and moving forward toward the kingdom. Although Melchizedek looks like he simply makes a cameo appearance in Genesis 14 and then disappears, the historical figure is the fountainhead of a priesthood and a figure who typifies and foreshadows Christ. His place in the history of redemption in the 26th century B.C., intends to give both the persecuted Jewish believers what they needed in the first century A.D. and what we need in our persecution for the faith in the 21st century A.D. Nevertheless, the things about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek are hard to explain, not because the topic itself is hard, but because the people in the church of the Hebrews are dull of hearing. Literally, the author writes, because sluggish you have become to the hearing to the hearing of things about Jesus and the Melchizedekian priesthood. On this sluggishness, one New Testament commentator writes, quote, the sluggishness of the addressees is specified in dullness or even reluctance to listen. Their difficulty is not simply mental laziness, but spiritual resistance. They are now unwilling to work out the deeper implications of the gospel in their lives. And their continued existence as Christians is dependent on their readiness to hear what he has to say, unquote. That is, they are not tired of hearing the word about Christ. They are instead refusing to hear the word about Christ. Their dullness of hearing is evident in not practicing distinguishing good from evil on the basis of the word of God, as 5.14 says. The author fills out his concept of dullness of hearing by also saying that by now, the readers have walked with Christ 
for a sufficient time that maturity at this point would require them to be at the level of teaching the solid food and not simply partaking of such. But they are so weak in their growth, growth of hearing that is, that they cannot even partake of solid food, but must be treated like little children. They need the basic principles from the word of God. Stochia is the Greek word there from which we get the term stoichiometry in chemistry. That is about the measuring of the elements or the calculation of reactants and products. It is a word used in ancient education to describe the elementary training of little children. The hearers need milk because they cannot handle solid food to go along with their elementary training. They are not skilled to utilize the word of God in the habit of discerning the good choices in the face of persecution from the evil choices. When I see a young mom who's about to feed her baby some baby food, dip her own finger in the baby food jar and then taste the food before giving it to the baby, I say to myself, only a mother's love. <laughs> because just to open the jar and smell the food is too much for me to handle. It's a wonder that all babies, even though they are without teeth, don't smack their spoons away and say, Mom, just give me the real stuff. <laughs> Doing more than the new mom with respect to their habits with the word of God these believers were downing a jar of baby food as their diet and then trying to go run marathons against the world. Instead, they should have been looking to unpackage the 39 books of the Hebrew Bible and pour over them with great prayer until God would reveal to them the wondrous things that would be in there to keep them strong in the face of the world's opposition to Christ. And that would keep them and help them to choose Christ when choosing the world's ways was much easier and even in some cases seemed like the happier choice. But maturing goes past dullness of hearing. Second, maturing means standing on stronger teaching and trusting the mercy of Christ. 6, 1 through 3. The author exhorts the Hebrews, therefore, to leave the elementary teaching of Christ for maturity. He is not saying to let these things go that he delineates in the verse or to reach for another gospel. He's not saying leave the gospel and move on to maturity or leave these things. He's just saying this is not enough. He's saying don't stop there, but keep going on top of what you have learned. When he describes the elementary items that should not be part of maturity, he includes things that we might have thought of as part of a mature course. But they will be the foundational items upon which to build a faith that can withstand intense persecution. So first he tells them that conversion is basic. Repentance is turning away from wrongdoing to God, from works that are dead toward righteousness to faith in God. Faith in God is how conversion occurs for those of you who are wrestling with whether or not to believe on Christ. Second, 
Cleansing and conferral rites are basic. In some translations, you have the word baptisms there, but that's not the best word with what's going on there. The term actually refers to ritual washings carried over into Christian practice from ancient Judaism. It was a practice that seemed to be tradition expanded by reference to cleansing rituals in the Old Testament. The laying on of hands, also mentioned in the verse, identified the church with the new convert or the acts of the new converts, but that's still basic. Third, coming things or last things were also foundational. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead and our subsequent resurrection through him are central to our faith. We avoid the eternal judgment of God on the basis of Christ dying for sin and rising again from the dead, the resurrection. We have the promise that we will be raised in him and avoid that judgment. All of these truths just delineated are part of a necessary foundation of Christian belief. But only standing on them without adding more, is not enough to prepare one's faith to endure what the Hebrews were receiving. When it comes to maturing, to moving forward in Christ, and going beyond the foundational teachings, the writer is not necessarily encouraging the equivalent of going to Bible college or seminary. He does not send them to enroll in the Hall of Tyrannus, if you will, but intends for them to hear greater things about Christ's priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. He intends for them to slow down enough in their reading of the story of redemption to see that the priestly role of Jesus runs from Melchizedek forward, permeates the whole Old Testament, and moves forward with such truths that would make the hearers say to their persecutors, bring it on, baby. We're not leaving that Jesus. We see who he really is. Just bring the persecution on. He intends for them to read meditatively upon Abraham. He wants them to meditate sufficiently so that they will be grabbing Abraham looking at 318 shepherds, taking them and defeating the armies of four kingdoms, and upon returning from battle, eating bread and wine with this king of Salem, which means peace, whose name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, eating bread and drinking wine with this king who is also a priest of God most high who blesses Abraham between the coming of the king of Sodom, Sodom and the king of Sodom offering Abraham some riches and to whom Abraham gives a tenth of his spoils. And then in three short verses, the prince king of peace and righteousness with the bread and wine is gone. Or so it seems. Until people like 
Jethro and Phineas and Job and Nehemiah and several others like them show up in the landscape of redemption too in the vein of Melchizedek. Watching the three verses of Melchizedek is like having a video on redemption flowing through the scriptures made by Childish Gambino. Yeah, for five seconds, you, you see in the background a king with priestly garments eating bread and wine with a victorious Abraham, and then they roll off the scene. And you say, wait, wait, play that again. What was that back there? That's what the Hebrew writer wants his reader to do until they have seen it enough times that they say, oh, those three verses with the bread and the wine and the king and Abraham, that was dope right there. Persecution, come on. That's what the writer wants them to slow down and do. So it is important here that we do not think exclusively of going to Bible college or seminary because a lack of education was not the problem. Sluggishness was the problem. They did not want to pick up their scriptures more, listen to more gospel preaching, or revisit the instructions they had gained by their teachers in their assemblies. They felt that was not working for them. But in holding only to the basic principles as milk drinkers, they were missing the Melchizedek-like stuff that would beef up their faith to withstand hatred for living for Christ. So what they needed is a habit of personal and corporate study that sought both a greater knowledge of Christ and the application of that knowledge. That is, of practice that distinguished good from evil on the basis of what was taught about the righteousness of Christ. They didn't need two or three studies, but just a habit of study and practice that included explaining the story of redemption from the Old Testament and connecting it to the truth about the person and work of Christ for the sake of loving God more. While this could mean enrolling in an academic Bible course or sequence for some of you, which I would not discourage, I would encourage, for all of us it definitely means disciplining ourselves to spend time studying the scriptures and also sitting with those in our local assemblies who are called and appointed to help us deepen and are accountable for our maturing in our love for Christ. Academic study of scripture alone, even in faithful evangelical context, does not necessarily prevent dullness in times of persecution as the persecution of some Bible college and seminary graduates has turned them into haters of the faith. Some of whose names you know, some you even know personally. What we need to stand in our love for Jesus is ongoing maturing in him, which the writer does not rest on us, but rest on the mercy of God. This we will do if God permits, he says in verse 3. It is not our own strength in which we mature. We cannot do that. Certainly not enough to withstand all this life throws at us for naming the name of Christ. We only mature as God permits the growth. 
being kind to keep us from becoming sluggish and dull to hearing his word. Third, maturing sees the danger of apostasy and of having contempt for Christ. It sees the danger of apostasy and having contempt for Christ in verses 4 through 8. The warning here is stern. Some think it must be hypothetical because it seems to say that believers face the impossibility of falling away and never being able to return to Christ. It is impossible in the case. Those once enlightened, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. However, from the immediate context and the context of the entire book of Hebrews, it would be right to understand that we are dealing with apostates and the concept of apostasy. Let me explain. Apostasy, or what the Hebrews writer refers to as falling away, is to leave one's confession forever. It is important to understand one is leaving a confession or a profession of faith and not a possession by God. I'm not splitting hairs here when I say something like this, but I'm talking about a reality evident throughout the New Testament. The persons in question here are holding Christ in contempt in verse 6. And there is the potential that they would not experience the things belonging to salvation in verse 9. They have the light of the knowledge of the truth of Christ. They somehow have experienced what seems to be salvation and what appears to be the working of the Holy Spirit and the benefit of following the word of God and a foretaste of what the future hope holds for believers. If they renounce all of that, by forsaking Christ and returning to ancient Judaism, they cannot again repent because they are not accepting the completed work of Christ for themselves. Now, that interpretation I just gave you is neither Arminian nor Calvinistic. Instead, it is drawing from the parable in verses 7 through 8 that corresponds to what was just said in verses 4 through 6. In verses 7 through 8, there is one land in view that drinks the rain, but there are two potential outcomes from the drinking of the rain. If you were looking at the land when it produced the crop, you would have seen it drink rain from above. If you had looked at the land when it bears thorns and thistles, you would have seen it drink the rain from above. So the issue is not the rain, but what the land yielded on the basis of what it received. In the one scenario, the land produces a crop being cultivated, the writer says. In the other, the land produces thorns and thistles from that same rain landing on it. Note then also the allegorical nature of the two parables, not allegorical interpretation which would rest on how we read the parables, but the allegorical elements when the author inserts receives a blessing from God and being cursed and then says, though we speak this way of you, 
The parable is about those once enlightened who tasted of the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word and powers of the age to come. It is a people who have drunk the rain, some to be blessed as those whose land was cultivated, who leave the elementary doctrine and go on to maturity because they do not remain dull of hearing, and of some to be burned as worthless. He allegorizes the persons in the products of the land, but both receive the same instruction. May I say that this passage is hard to swallow even for those who have loved Christ for a long time. It is harsh because we grieve for those who are tempted to turn away or even for those who are led to turn away by a cult or those who are led to turn away when they go to college or after a life-altering trauma, or after losing a friend to tragic circumstances. I grieve and you grieve for people who do this, who want less and less of Christ because it is more comfortable to embrace the world, and then they eventually embrace the world. You cannot renounce Jesus and claim once saved, always saved. Even in saying that, let me be clear that we are talking about full renunciation. Renunciation of all that came with Christ and walking away forever and not returning. We are not talking about the experiences of a believer committing a sin or the experience of walking away from a congregation and floating around for an unspecified time until you finally find a healthy church into which to settle. And we are not talking about the experience of committing suicide as many people come to in this passage. We have to be sober. Walking with Christ is not like rooting for the home team when they are winning and then going with another team during the year that your first team is playing poorly. That might be okay for Bulls fans. <laughs> But that is not okay for following Jesus. Yet even those who identify themselves as true Bulls fans would not accept the Fairweather fans as Bull fans because you did not stick with the team during tough times. Why should we think differently when it comes to eternal matters? Why should we think as the book and the movie by the same name, Silence, indicates that a renouncing of faith is still faith. That believers trampling Christ is the reason for which Christ came. No, there is a danger in being an apostate, in turning from Christ and holding him in contempt. That danger is that you never had Christ and his salvation in the first place. And verses 9 through 12 make this clear. Our fourth point. Maturing brings assurance of salvation for one continuing earnestly toward Christ. Maturing brings assurance of salvation for one continuing earnestly toward Christ. Note the certainty the writer 
has for those whom he just admonished. He says, in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He said, there is a case that if they fall away, but in your case, we are sure that that's not going to happen. We are sure that salvation is the thing that's going to happen to you. The things that he mentioned above are a case that does not have the things that belong to salvation. The hearers are tempted to leave Christ, but they still have work and love toward the saints for Christ's sake. The author points to the work and the love for assurance of salvation on the basis that the just God will not miss their work and their love. Yet, the exhortation is for them to show the work and the love for the saints until the end, it says. Until the time they will inherit all that Christ has promised. That is the only way to avoid sluggishness. You see how the author makes the dullness of hearing the issue with the two bookends in there? It's the same term for sluggishness or dullness of hearing that we encountered in 5.11. The only way to avoid sluggishness, the sluggishness that characterizes the apostate who has no assurance of things that belong to salvation is to continue in Christ. So you want to know how to hang on when you're tempted to leave the faith? Do not try to work out things in isolation. Don't say, just let me figure this out on my own. Just let me go and compare other religious ideas and, and see where I'm, I'm at. Just let me take a break from church for, for, for a while. And, you know, I'll, I'll probably be back. Nope. Isolation will not help you. Instead, the writer to the Hebrews tells you to do this. Find saints of God who kept faith in times of trial and endured persecution and go imitate them. Do what they did. And if you're one of those saints of faith and patience, please make it known to those of us who are following Christ and are coming behind you. Tell us your stories. Allow us, please, to sit in your kitchens with coffee so you can tell us how you held on to Christ when all seemed hopeless, or when you were the only one in your family striving for Christ, or when you were hit with pain on three or four fronts at once and had to hunker down and just wait until the Almighty turned the tide on one or two of the theaters of your war. Tell us how you clung to Jesus with one finger as it were, and then one day saw a sign of change in your child. Tell us how you got over, how Jesus made a way out of no way for you, how the Spirit of God spoke peace in chaos, how Jesus sent a friend by when you asked him to be present. Tell us how on the day you did not feel like going to Sunday worship, God kindly woke you up, put you in your clothes so that you could come and hear the very word you needed to hear to keep going another week. Tell us how to keep maturing when apostasy looks like the best option and help our souls to look back and wonder so we too can be fully assured that we have Christ. Father, we thank you for your kindness.
It all rests on you, Jesus, and by grace will continue in you. So make us to continue. As our forefather in the faith, Augustine said, command what you will and will what you command. Do this in us, Father. We don't know what's around the corner in terms of the challenges to our faith. So now, help us to build upon the foundation and to imitate the saints you have graciously provided in our lives who have held on in the greatest challenges and can tell us it'll be okay if we hang on to Christ. Bless your people now, we pray, and give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.